ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing with us his tales, his anecdotes, his bookings, and so much more. Without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you today? I'm great, Brian. Uh, happy as heck to be here, and uh, got the old lightning saddled up, and we've got another good one here, I think, man. We're going to cover some ground today, uh, take us a nice long ride, uh, we're going to cover one week, basically, but uh, we've got a lot of things uh, in this one that uh, we don't normally get to, and I'm um, looking forward to it. You know, speaking of another good one, real quick before we get going with this episode of the Studcast, Ron, want to make mention of the latest Super Studcast, and this being part two of Super Studcast number 21, this time with another member of your family. So many people love to hear you talk with your brother or your cousin. This time it's another cousin, your second cousin, Roy Lee Welch, on this episode. You have to hear it today. Hear about the early days of Lester Welch. Hear about the early days of Hulk Hogan. Hear about the Knoxville War, the Atlanta War, and so much more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast more information later in the show but check this one out as soon as you can ron what's on today's episode of the studcast well we're going to start by finishing the august 8th gate and the payoffs from the last studcast uh, that's the only thing we didn't get to in the last one we're going to talk about the unique main event for august 15th your howick park matches run down that entire card give you the house and the payoffs Revisit the very unusual finish in the second semifinals of the TV tournament with interference by an unknown masked man, and then crown the champion in the long-awaited finals for the Southeastern TV Championship with Rock Hunter against Tommy Siegler. So uh, if you're ready, my man, I think I'm going to jump right on the horse here, and uh, let's see what <laughs> we can get, see how far we can get here. Let's get going, Ron. All right, so let's start with the August 8, 1975 crowd numbers. Let's back up to the last studcast. This was headlined by the Assassin and Rock Hunter versus Tommy Sigler and Ron Wright match. I got involved, as I, pr I had promised on TV the Saturday before, but not on the side of my former partner, the Assassin, and his friend Rock Hunter, but against them. The second main event on that card was the best two out of three falls, Southern Tag Championship with the champions, Carl Von Steiger and Otto Von Heller, managed by Sam Bass versus Jimmy Golden and Robert Fuller. There was no winner in this one. The crowd in the amphitheater at Chilhowee Park was about 3300 for a $9,900 house and about a $2,800 total payoff. The bottom guys, Don Wright, DeVoy Brunson, Frank Morrell, and the referee all got about 125 and And uh, I did not take a payoff again. And the top 10 guys... Got about $220 each. There were no other cities running in that week. The August 15, 1975 Knoxville Card and Chilhowee Park was headlined with one of the most unusual main event matches ever booked. The Assassin and I were tag Tennessee tag champions, but had not defended the titles together since June 27th, six weeks earlier. 
Combine that with the fact that we were not even speaking to each other at this point, and I was doing my best to cost Rock Hunter and the assassin as many matches as possible. Something had to be done to find a new Tennessee Tag Championship uh, team. Uh, the first of the three main events for August 15th was a first-ever single match between the two former tag champions, the Assassin and myself, the Tennessee Tag Champions, uh, where the winner of the singles match would get the most unusual opportunity to pick his new partner, and they would become the new Tennessee Tag Champions. So basically, you're going to take a singles match and turn it into new tag champions uh, from the results of that match. We'll talk more about this match as we discuss the TV show from the Saturday before. The second main event was booked as a special challenge match between Tommy Siegler and Rock Hunter. But that same Saturday, August 9th TV, is going to produce fireworks with the finals of the TV championship. It will be a much more important event by the following Friday. The third match in this triple main event was ordered by the Tennessee Athletic Commission, a return match for the Southern Tag Championship held by Carl Von Steiger and Otto Von Heller, managed by Sam Bass, versus Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Uh, Ron Wright would take on Sam Bass with the opening match, and the opening match uh, itself was Don Wright, his brother, versus Frank Morrell. So let's take a look at this very important television program on Saturday, August 9th, that would feature the finals for the first-ever Southeastern TV Championship. Because of the significance of the TV championship on this show, the TV opened with a very unusual replay of the controversial ending of the second semifinal match from the week before. Les opened the show from the set and asked the assassin and Rock Hunter to join him at the set. Les informed them as they arrived that they were going to start the show today with what had happened last week in the last match on that show. He asked the director to roll the tape and asked for comments from both guys as the video began. The action picked up with Ron with the semifinal match for the TV championship with Ron Wright and Rock Hunter. Wright was shown being sent flying through the ropes onto the studio concrete by Rock Hunter, an unidentified mass wrestler with a body very similar to the assassin, but in an outfit never associated with the assassin, appears from nowhere, headbutts Ron Wright in the back of the head while the referee is dealing with Rock Hunter in the ring and doesn't see it. There's total silence from the assassin and Rock Hunter as this is happening on the TV screen. Les Thatcher asked for their comments about what is what was happening, but the silence continued. Les continues by himself, describing the action as the show's director very alertly puts up a split screen showing the replay on one side of the screen and the two guests of Les's being obviously the assassin and Rock Hunter glancing at each other, searching for words to describe what is happening on the other side of the screen. When it ended and Ron Wright had been counted out on the floor, Les dug in for a response from either Hunter or the assassin. The assassin finally broke the ice, asking, I don't see why you brought us out here for this. What does it have to do with me or my friend, Mr. Hunter? He is a very important match today for the Southeastern TV Championship. Are you, Les Thatcher, and the promoters of Southeastern insinuating by what you're showing us here that I had something to do with what these hillbillies here just saw? Les fired back, obviously. Uh, he says, basically, is that masked man we just saw not you? The assassin got very upset, and he cranked it up because of it. Thatcher, he says, my attorneys, my close friend, Rock Hunter, and I all anticipated what was going to happen here today. We knew you, the promoters, and the hillbillies out here in this crowd were going to try to make the point that I was under that hood. Do you, Les Thatcher, or your so-called promoters have any proof that the masked man we all saw a few minutes ago was me. Now, remember, Thatcher, I think he said, I said, proof. Les hesitated. He was thinking about his answer here. It seemed like the assassin and rock hunter were prepared for this to happen to them that day. And so Les says, uh, I have no proof, but obviously very little doubt that that masked man was you. Uh, so, Assassin fires right back at him. He says, be very careful, Mr. Announcer. And this was the assassin style. It made great interviews. It made so much sense. And he spoke directly to the point. 
You and your promoters are treading on dangerous waters. I ask you again, does anyone have absolute proof that the man in question on that video was me? If not, my friend, Rock Hunter, and I will be leaving this set right now. They got up to leave, and Les called them back. Uh, he had him sit back down again. And he says, uh, to, as best I can remember, if anyone here had absolute proof that that was you, you and your friend, Rock Hunter, would be in the dressing room right now, packing your bags and leaving Southeastern Wrestling forever. I have been told to inform both of you that if anyone from either dressing room gets involved in the TV championship match today, they will be banned from Southeastern Wrestling immediately and never allowed to return. The TV audience exploded with that one. Wow, they, they really had him over a barrel now. Uh, but the assassin, being the same assassin he always was, cool character, he kept his cool. And, uh, and, he, and he said, we never cheat because we are so great at what we do that cheating is not necessary for us to win. It's going to be a big day for my friend here, Rock Hunter, and all these Hillbilly fans because he's going to easily defeat Tommy Siegler today and become the first ever Southeastern TV champion. They got up, they left a huge chorus of booze, and Les threw it to the ring announcer for the introduction of the first match. A pretty nice, sweet segment at the beginning of the show that kind of went back, take the fans back to the week before and give them an opportunity to see that again and also to question the guy that obviously, pretty obviously, in fact, was uh, responsible for being there. Ron, do you think there's any heel that was able to exude evil as well as the assassin? He's wearing a mask. I mean, I'm talking about masked wrestlers. And there's so many different masked wrestlers from that era, heels and baby faces, but no one was able to exude so much and especially just evilness with their face, like the assassin with that mask on. He, he really had it. I mean, both he and uh, his partner, Tom Ernesto, and they, they looked so much alike. They were identical, that's for sure. And I think they made their mask about two sizes too small. His, his head looked like <laughs> it barely fit in it. You think about it. His eyes were like, pushed out oh. from the from all the tightness of the mask and it only uh, got worse <laughs> yeah, yeah you know and it just worse. made him look worse i mean it has it made his appearance uh, more more deadly i mean you know you he was scary to look at in the ring when you were wrestling him and so was ronesto they both had that same look and wow they just had a way of uh, handling themselves and especially in their interviews and the way they their style of being very to the point, uh, very uh, quiet, and, you know, they hardly ever raised their voices. And they really didn't have to because the what they were saying most of the time was pretty darn scary in itself. So they, they, really, uh, they really were talents beyond measure uh, back in those days. And, and just really, really, I was really obviously very, very happy to have a guy like the Assassin in this particular crew at this time frame just getting started. So we're in the first match. Phil Rainey announces the Southern Tag Champions. It's going to be a tag match with the champions of Carl Von Steiger and Otto Von Heller. They're managed by Sam Bass, and they're wrestling against Paul Diamond and Rocky Smith. Uh, Sam Bass gathered the championship belt, and he joined Les at the set for the tag match, kind of as he had done before when they had wrestled on TV. The match was a very good one especially with Rocky Smith that carried the babyface side of the match. Sam Bass uh, carried the ball at the set, as always, pretty darn good talker, and covered the fact very well that their title match the night before in Knoxville was stopped in the third fall and that the Tennessee Athletic Commission had demanded a one-fall, 60-minute time limit return championship match the following Friday in Knoxville for the same two guys, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Uh, so, you know, he sets the tone for that particular match. We have released at this point, have talked about what happened in the semifinals match the week before. Now we've talked about one of the matches that's going to take place the next Friday. And Robert and Jimmy, they go to the set as soon as the tag match was over. And they watched part of the video of the third fall of that tag match from the night before when their match was stopped by a double disqualification. They had immediately repealed the results of the match of the Tennessee Athletic Commission, and they received a special return match 
for another chance at the belts. The studio crowd was really into the match on the monitors around the studio as they watched the third fall of that great match for the Southern Heavyweight Tag Championship. And they uh, gave the two young stars a great ovation as they left the set. After the commercial break, Sam Bass and his German team returned to the set. Sam bitched about the athletic commission getting involved and forcing another Southern tag title defense. He promised right there to everybody that if those two young punks didn't win the championship this next time, the next Friday night, they would never, ever get another chance at the Southern tag championship, no matter what the Tennessee athletic commission said. Pretty big boast to be made by Sam Bass. Uh, you know, back in those days, the athletic commission carried a lot more weight than it should have. Uh, it wasn't really a viable uh, the, the commission that had uh, handled disputes very often. And, uh, you know, he was really giving the athletic commission hell when uh, it really wasn't that powerful at this particular time frame. Where did you go to next on the show, Ron? The second TV match was Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Uh, you know, I had them on before. I wanted them to have them back-to-back with the team that they were going to be wrestling because this is a different type of program. Uh, there's not going to be but one more match in this in this television show. So, uh, and Robert and Jimmy are going against Tony Peters and Rick Connors. The fans loved this one from the very beginning and really got into it when Bass and his German team, all three showed up standing alone in the studio toward the end of the tag match in plain sight of everybody that was in the studio. Robert and Jimmy kept motioning them for him to come on, get in the ring. But uh, only threats were being made. Just the mere fact that the heel team was standing in the studio where they could be seen was enough for the fans to take their support and cheers to the next level. Robert and Jimmy won the match with a pair of beautiful drop kicks on their opponents at the same time, double drop kick, and followed by a double cover. So they beat both those guys in probably a short period of time, I'd say somewhere between five and eight minutes. I joined Les at the set during the match to a resounding response from the studio audience. I was at this point now a full-fledged babyface. I watched a video of the tag match from the night before where I'd gotten involved trying to create a loss for the Assassin and Hunter team. It had actually cost... Tommy Sigler and Ron Wright, the, their victory, because I got them disqualified with my interference. But I really didn't care at this point. I was only focused on causing the assassin and rock hunter to lose. Les and I discussed all the things that had brought me from being a hated wrestler to a very popular one. We also talked about the six weeks that had gone by with no Tennessee tag title defense from me and my champion partner, the Assassin. We touched on the very unusual stipulation for the single match I was to have against my former partner, the Assassin, the following Friday night in Knoxville. In this match, the first between the Assassin and I in Southeastern wrestling history, a winner would retain one half of the Tennessee Tag Championship and be allowed for the first time in Tennessee wrestling history to pick his own new partner going forward. It was one of those booking ideas that I'd come up with that I think was totally unique. The old Tennessee Tag Champions were no more after this match, and a new team would be created by the choice of the winner of a single match. I don't think that ever been done before, and I, I've never seen that booked anywhere. Had you ever seen the angle where the two partners feud with each other while still holding the tag team belts before? I had not seen that either. So, you know, and this was pretty unique, uh, what had happened between me and the assassin, the fact that uh, his buddy arrives and, uh, and he and his buddy are just uh, stuck together. Uh, they are just uh, unseparable. And uh, I get kind of shoved in the background, and it seems like that I have no importance in as far as the assassin is concerned. And so this seemed like a great way to settle it. And uh, in a way that had never been done before. So, you know, I was trying to come up with new things. And uh, and this one is something that was really new. A lot of the guys, in fact, once they saw what the match was all about, they were kind of blown away. Like, wow, man, that's a hell of an angle. You know, never seen anything like that. So, so I'm doing a pretty decent job for a young guy at this point in coming up with things that have not been done. 
the assassin and his good friend Rock Hunter, they took the second interview spot after the commercial break. They each covered their individual matches the following Friday. The assassin bragged, obviously, about being it his idea to let the winner of our match pick his own partner for the establishment of a new Tennessee Tag Championship team. He complained about my interference in that tag match the night before, and again both wrestlers made the threat to hurt me real bad if this problem persisted between me and them. Rock Hunter focused on his special event match with Tommy Sigler the following Friday night. The three main event matches for the next Friday night card were very strong matches, but would be even more powerful after this TV was over. Personality Profile was a very special one. It featured the beautiful TV trophy that was to be presented to the winner of the upcoming TV championship match. The trophy was about four feet tall. Uh, Les cut the profile into two segments, one with Siegler and the other with Rock Hunter, and the ever-present assassin was joining Rock Hunter in his segment. He explained to each and the TV audience in in these separate segments that this special match would be done over two match segments that it would begin in the third TV match spot and, if need be, would continue into the last match segment. If it lasted longer than one segment, a commercial break would be taken during the match, but the match would continue being recorded. If a fall occurred during the commercial break, the finish of the match would be shown after the break. All remaining wrestler interviews would be held until the end of the match and after the TV champion had been crowned. If by some chance there was no winner, he said, before the end of the show, next show, next week's show would begin with the same two competitors and continue with these same rules until a winner was finally crowned. So in other words, we set aside two, the last two matches of this show, the last half of this show, basically, to make sure that we had a winner in that TV championship match. But in case it didn't have a winner, we would be able then to bring both of those guys back and start the next wrestling show with that and go as many match segments as we needed to to be able to find a television wrestling champion. Another kind of unique way of doing it, too. I don't think I'd seen that done before either, especially with maybe even considering having to bring them back for a separate show. That was your idea also? That was my idea. I was uh, really thinking. I had my hat on, and uh, my old uh, my old Booker's hat was uh, was fitting pretty good. And I was coming up with quite a few things in this particular program, and especially built around the TV championship because this TV championship is going to be something very important down the road, and for as long as Southeastern is is a is a entity that is promoting wrestling. Uh, each competitor was then recognized. Uh, after they discussed these rules, each of these two competitors and different segments, you had Tommy Siegler on one segment, you had Rock Hunter and the Assassin on the other segment. Each competitor was recognized for who he had beat on his way to the finals, how much he wanted to win this honor, and how often he would be willing to defend this trophy, either in the studio or at even live events. So after the segments were pre-produced, they were spliced together providing a very interesting personality profile that spent 100% of its five-minute duration time promoting the Southeastern Wrestling Show on the new WBIR-TV station. The stage was set. I felt very good about the way we had designed this TV championship match and how much we could build this title into something special as the years went by in Southeastern Wrestling. So you're already thinking long-term in terms of something like the TV title? All long term, yes. Uh, you know, I'd only seen one other television title. Uh, it was in Florida. Uh, and I, I knew that when I got my own company, if I ever got my own company, I was going to have a TV champion. It made sense to do that. And I had spent the time figuring out how exactly to do it. And uh, yes, it was going to become one of the big championships. We used it uh, uh, in not only Knoxville, but once Southeastern went to Pensacola we would have night of champions in which our TV champion would wrestle live in those events as well as other champions that were uh, in the territory. So then the third segment of the show opened up with Rock Hunter and the Assassin, Tommy Siegler, the referee, the announcer, and co-host Phil Rainey in the ring. 
Uh, Phil did an excellent job of announcing the rules for a potential two-segment TV match. The assassin was told to leave the ring by the referee and again reminded that any interference in the match would cost him his current position with Southeastern Wrestling forever. The referee brought both men to the center of the ring, checked them for objects, something you never see anymore, by the way, and motioned for the bell to be rung. There was exactly 30 minutes remaining in the entire show when that bell was rung. That was about 21 minutes of match time with four minutes of the TV station's commercial time, four minutes of Southeastern interview time, and a one-minute close of the show. Everything had to be timed perfectly for the show not to run long. If it ran long, you did not get the end of the match, and that would have been a critical error. So it was all it all had to work as timed. Uh, the fans in the studio, they were electric. I mean, they really got into the fact that this was a television championship match. The trophy was monster. It was beautiful. Everything had been built toward this finals. And uh, I'd never seen a television match with such a buildup to it. And neither had the fans. The beginning of the match was all wrestling, which I loved. And obviously, so did the fans. Both wrestlers exchanged wrist locks and chain wrestled through many beautiful moves. I was impressed that Rock Hunter knew as much wrestling as he showed in the first 10 minutes of this match. At the end of the first 10 minutes, Les called for the director to take the first commercial break for the TV station and reminded fans that if a pinfall or submission occurred during the break, it would be replayed for the fans via instant replay. Tommy Siegler was in control of the match at that point with a hammerlock on Rock Hunter's left arm and the studio crowd roaring their approval. When the match returned, uh, two minutes later, basically, with the, the TV station had their commercial break. They had four, four commercials during that break, and we went right straight back to the ring. When the match returned to the screen, it had taken a great change. Rock Hunter was, at this point, slamming Siegler's face in the turnbuckle in one of the ring corners, and the fans were on their feet. Les explained as quickly as possible how Hunter had taken over while the commercial break was occurring. Hunter had begun a series of attempts to pin a desperate Siegler, and the crowd wildly responded each time Siegler kicked out. Hunter pulled out every possible pin he knew, and Siegler kicked out again and again. Body slams, suplex, and a hard right hand to Siegler's head as he came off the ropes could not finish the determined star. The more he appeared beat, the louder the studio audience reacted to his escape and to his kickout. The match was approaching the 20-minute mark. Finally, Hunter piled drive Siegler in the middle of the ring. Then Hunter almost had to crawl over to cover Siegler as both men were obviously exhausted at this point. They had been 20 straight minutes under television lights. And I don't know if people think about that much, but those lights in those television studios back in the day were so hot that you would sweat twice as badly as you would in a arena that had no air conditioning. It was really, really exhausting to have a 20-minute television match. The referee's hand was coming down. He covered Siegler. Hunter crawled over and he covered Siegler. Uh, and the referee's hand was coming down toward the mat for the three count when Hunter pulled Siegler's head and shoulders off the mat. The crowd booed in unison, man, and they started to clap their hands and shout, Tommy, 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 for Tommy Siegler. Hunter slowly rose to his feet and pulled a down-and-out Siegler to his feet. He shoved Siegler's head between his own legs, Rock smiled at the screaming crowd as he lifted Siegler's body upward in preparation for a final pile driver. Uh, Siegler kicked his feet as Hunter lifted them from the canvas. Hunter's smile suddenly left his face as Siegler kicked again, and Hunter lost his grip around Siegler's waist. Siegler, with all his remaining strength in his feet firmly back on the canvas, flipped Hunter over his back and landed with all his weight on top of the stunned Hunter, then did a perfect bridge. It was beautiful to force Hunter's back to the mat. When the referee began his count, the studio audience began the count with him, actually counting the numbers. I'd never heard a crowd do that. Hundreds of fans could be heard counting to three with the referee as he finished the count and called for the bell. Pandemonium ruled as everyone in the building sprang to their feet, still screaming as Siegler's hand was raised. 
I shot up into the ring, along with Robert and Jimmy and several other baby faces, to begin the raucous celebration along with the studio fans. Uh, Les could barely be heard above the continuous roar. Uh, he was trying to, you know, talk about what was going on in the action and look at what's happening in the ring. And, and I mean, the crowd was drowning him out. The huge TV trophy was handed to a beaming Tommy Sigler, and the instant replayed showed it all again. The Southeastern Wrestling Television Championship was off to a great start, that was for sure. And that wasn't the end of the program? There's still something after that? It seems like a pretty hot end of the show. There's, that's not the end? No, actually, we have that four-minute interview segment that we were we did not use because we were... Uh, scared that we might run long and we would need that four-minute interview segment, so we had held it. The television station took two of their four minutes after that first break, after the first fall of the match, or the, basically after the third third segment of the match. And then we come back, and now we have another commercial break where the station gets another two minutes, and then we get our entire four minutes to interview about what's going to happen the following Friday night. Uh, it was one of the few times in Southeastern wrestling history that the show would end up with four total minutes of interviews following the TV station's last break. All of the baby faces remained in the ring with Siegler as the crowd's celebration continued, and Phil Rainey prepared to interview some of us, while Les was joined at the set by Rock Hunter, the assassin, Sam Bass, and both his Germans. Uh, Rainey opened a long interview with congratulations to the new TV champion, Tommy Siegler, and got a few comments from him about the match, uh, and, uh, and then a couple about the following Friday night's match and the importance of winning a singles match to, to me, and he discussed the importance of winning a singles match to determine the new Tennessee tag champions. So there's Phil Rainey, who is not accustomed to doing a lot of interviews, who's uh, got to talk to not only me, he's got to talk to Tommy Siegler, and he's going to talk to Rob and Jimmy, all in this four-minute interview here. Uh, Les picked up where he left off with the assassin answering my remarks about our match. Then Sam Bass started with his boys uh, having to defend their Southern title because of the Tennessee Athletic Commission ruling with Robert and Jimmy Golan should get another shot. Uh, Phil asked Robert and Jimmy their thoughts about the championship match. They were going to be following the next Friday. The, we were basically throwing it from the ring to the set uh, heels on the set, baby faces in the ring. Uh, that had probably not been done. We had never done that before. And I think we probably did that as time went on again. But uh, it's very effective because you've got to hear both sides at one time. TV audience just kept popping as each interview was done. Rock Hunter forced the cameras back on his group at the set with Les. He was very upset and wanted to add stipulations immediately to his match the following Friday night against Siegler. Uh, by, and he offered to put up his Brass Nucks championship in this regular match. It was going to be a regular match between him and Siegler. But he says, I'll put up my Brass Nucks championship if you'll put up the new TV championship next Friday night. Uh, so Siegler committed to it. He said, absolutely, I'll put up the TV championship, and I'm going to walk out of there with both of them. The cameras returned to the ring, and Siegler accepted the challenge. The next Friday night, let's close one of the most exciting Southeastern wrestling television shows ever as we left the air with the cameras capturing the entire studio audience still screaming and standing and celebrating in the background behind a ring full of celebrating baby faces. It was an absolute phenomenal finish to a television program. Uh, for the uh, first time ever as a promoter and owner of a wrestling company, I realized what we had accomplished on this TV show was of even more importance than what would be drawn the next Friday or many other Fridays in the future. We had set new standards for any TV wrestling show in the world. Production, technology, excitement, and creativity had been combined to become the perfect television wrestling program. Uh, I think we almost, I, I'd, I'd say we probably outdid ourselves in this particular program we will be back in a moment with more of this program but first a word about the latest super stud cast super stud cast number 21 part two with the former united states junior heavyweight champion ron's second cousin roy lee Welch. 
Super Studcast number 21, part two, is now available. Part one is all about the fascinating career of Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Patrons around the world have been blown away by this tremendous 90-minute deep dive into one of the most unique personas in the history of pro wrestling at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part two introduces another new Welch family member, Roy Lee Welch. This time, it is Ron's second cousin, stockholder, and star in southeastern pensacola and continental wrestling part two opens with a historic ride with roy lee's father lester welch one of the original four welch brothers that began it all for the largest family ever in the sports this 90 minute plus journey goes in all directions even crossing the path of brutus beefcake and hulk hogan as they broke in with southeastern in 1979 the atlanta wrestling war spectacular crowds as the future hulk faced world champion Champion Harley Race and Andre the Giant for the first time ever. The Knoxville Wrestling War and so much more. Three plus total hours of entertainment and history that can only be heard at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Saddle up for another great ride. Lester Welch. Here's stories about Roy Welch from someone other than one of his grandkids. There's so much great stuff on here. If you're about the early days of Hulk Hogan, check it out today. TNstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. You get in the door. It's the best deal in wrestling. Check it out today. But Ron, let's return to Knoxville. What were the results? And uh, while we're talking about the results, what were the payoffs? For the show you were building up for Friday, August 15th, 1975. Yes, the results of the night, uh, that night was Don Wright won his match over Frank Morrell, which was an opening match and darn good one at that. Ron Wright beat Sam Bass, another great match in the second match. Carl Von Steiger and Otto Von Heller, managed by Sam Bass, retained their Southern Tag Championships over Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Rock Hunter beat Tommy Siegler, retaining his Brass Nucks title, plus he took control of the TV championship that Tommy Siegler had only held for a short, very short period of time. Uh, the last match of the night ended in a no contest between the assassin and myself when wrestlers from both dressing rooms filled the ring. It was a wild affair, and we did not get accomplished what I'd hoped that we would be able to accomplish. There was no winner. And what's going to have to happen is the next week, we're going to come back with a Tennessee Tag Team Championship Tournament uh, to decide who the new Tennessee Tag Champions are. Uh, The crowd had reached that 4,000 plateau again that we had not reached since July 4th. Uh, That was, again, about a $12,000 gross gate, total payoff of around $3,300. The, boy, the bottom boys for this night were Frank Morrell, Ron and Don Wright, and the referee. They all got 200 each, and I didn't take a payoff again, as usual. And the remaining top eight on that card got $370 each as a payoff, which for 1975, that's a pretty darn good night's work. Uh, and uh, I think they were probably very, very happy to make that kind of money Uh Toward the end of August, uh, we're about to come to a slow period for all wrestling companies as school starts back around the country. Ron, considering they were working for you so frequently, where were the Assassin, Rock Hunter, and Tommy Siegler living at this period of time? The Assassin and Hunter lived in in Atlanta, and Siegler lived in South Carolina. So Siegler was crossing the Smokies uh, on Interstate 40 coming in every time. Uh, He had a fairly long trip because he was further away. Atlanta was a three-hour drive from Knoxville up 75, Interstate 75. So these guys were close. uh, And, uh, you know, to get that kind of a payoff, they were – I think everybody, those those top guys were certainly very happy with that. Even guys like Ron Don Wright – who were working on the first and second match, extremely unusual for them to be that low on the card. But uh, they made $200 each. That's a pretty good night for them, too. Uh, They probably worked all week uh, in the Kodak uh, company there, 
uh, and made maybe less than that or just slightly more than that for an entire week's work. And they made this probably in less than 15 minutes each that night. So you got to look at that as being a pretty good deal for, for guys that are working full-time jobs and they can make that kind of money in just a few minutes on a Friday night. Yeah. So what happened from here, we're going to just, uh, we're going to kind of talk about some of the things that we haven't gotten to lately. We're going to talk about, uh, my attorney here. Uh, he's ecstatic by my turn to baby face and he had no problems in congratulating me about it. Uh, uh, I had no problem with assigning him the task of finding our long injured fan from way back in the Dale Lewis and Danny Hodge days. I said, now, okay, I did what you wanted. I want you to find this guy for me and I'll take it from there. I wanted to meet him now. And, and now that I was not despised by the fans and uh, find out if my attorney was correct in saying that I maybe could save thousands of dollars if I could fix this problem myself. My attorney began immediately trying to locate and arrange a private meeting between the two of us. Finally, I began to feel better about this $100,000 lawsuit that had been a thorn in my side for many, many months at this point, and I'm really looking for a way to end it. And as pleased as I was about the lawsuit situation, I was just as unhappy about Jimmy Golden giving me a two-week notice on Friday night, August 8th, 1975, in Knoxville's Chihuahua Park. I had plans for both he and Robert well into the fall at least. We had the normal conversation concerning it, and I asked if he was unhappy. Obviously, that's one of the things you ask a guy that wants to go somewhere else. He said, no, of course not. I asked if his father, Billy Golden, was okay. Uh, Jimmy's father was a promoter, and uh, he worked. Uh, he, he promoted Montgomery, Alabama. He promoted towns in Louisiana. And there were occasions when Billy had problems, and Jim, Jimmy would have to go and, and spend time with his dad and try to help his dad out to get things straightened out. He said, no, that wasn't a problem. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with Billy. I finally asked where he was going, and he was honest and upfront with me. He said Ricky Gibson had ended up in the Florida Territory after he left Southeastern, and he had gotten over pretty well. He said that he had talked to Ricky and that, and they, and that uh, they told Ricky in Florida that if he had a partner, they'd have a, probably a better spot for him. Uh, we both knew that Jimmy and Ricky made a terrific team. That was obvious. I never made an attempt to stop him from going, as I always did with anyone that wanted to find a better spot. Uh, if I had known what was about to happen to me in the next couple of weeks, I might have begged him to stay instead of not even you know, trying to get him to stay because something bad is going to happen. And it's going to, I would have given anything to have kept Jimmy Golden when this goes down in the next couple of weeks. There's other things too, Brian, going on at this time frame that I just learned about during it, during this, this time frame to be exactly. I mentioned in a few stud casts back about July being a ratings month for television stations nationwide. July had, that had just passed was a rating month. And my good friend, Lynn Lepper, who was the sales manager at WBI, already explained how the system worked. We had talked about the importance of having something special on those four shows in July. I had done my best to make those four shows special. I was brought into Lynn's office just a few days after the TV that we discussed today. Uh, obviously, the finals of the Southeastern TV Championship would have been perfect, but I was a few days past the actual book before I could get to the finals of the TV Championship. Lynn did have the numbers for me, and we took a very close look at where we were in July of 1975. In order to really find out these answers, Lynn had to pull the July book of 1974 uh, since John Kazana's figures were in that book, not in the 75 book. Uh, we wanted to look, I asked Lynn, I said, I want to get as close an idea as where we are at now so I can recognize our growth in the future. So he said, Ron, I got to pull the 1974 book. And uh, so when he showed me the numbers, uh, he set them down in front of me, the 1974 book 
on one side, the 1975 book on the other. Uh, the 1974 book has nothing to do with Southeastern. It's all Kazana. The 1975 book has nothing to do with Kazana. It's all Southeastern. So we took those figures one by one. And, uh, and uh, they were very broad. And these, and the, the way that these uh, Nielsen and Arbitron uh, put their ratings together, it was very, very uh, broad, and it analyzed a lot of different things. It were extremely important. This was like a real learning experience for me. First time anybody had ever spent any time with me in explaining how to read the numbers in a ratings book, for one thing, and then what they actually meant. So they told you that the number of total people watching there's some of the things they analyze for you. The number of total people watching, the age groups of those people, the cities, were they in cities or small towns? And it gave you a share of the audience watching at the time your show was on. To me, that total share of audience was the critical number. We looked at the share for John Kazana's TV in 1974, in July of 1974, the first book. Uh, July is a slower time frame for television markets, and it's it, it's called the worst book of the year. Uh, some stations didn't even pay any attention to it. I wanted to pay attention to all four of the books. You got a rating in July, November, February, and May. And uh, this book was important to me. Uh, his program was different than mine in a lot of ways, and it made it difficult to analyze the numbers and compare the numbers. His program ran at 6 p.m. on the smallest TV station in the Knoxville market. My program ran at 2 p.m. on the largest television station in the Knoxville market. There were obviously more homes watching their televisions at 6 o'clock at night rather than at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That skews the number some, too. It makes it hard to figure out how you are doing at 2 o'clock compared to someone's show that was on at 6 o'clock. They had to be taken under, all of this had to be taken under consideration. The total share Kazana had in the July of 1974 at 6 p.m. was 15 share. That meant only 15% of all the homes watching from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock on Saturday night was watching wrestling when John Kazana owned the company in 1974. Our numbers for 1975 on WBIR at 2 p.m. was 35%. Uh, sounds like a lot bigger number than the 15 that Kazana had, but bear in mind you that- You can't really gauge it, though, because it, yeah. it, there are so many differences in terms of the strength of the channel and everything else. It's hard to yeah. gauge it. It's really, really difficult to gauge. Uh, but uh, the one number that, that uh, really is going to stand out, two years down the road and three years down the road in 1977, in a 1970 book, our number for share at 2 o'clock in the afternoon is going to be 80. And that is unbelievable. I mean, you know, basically there's four television stations and 80% of people that have their televisions on from 2 to 3 o'clock have wrestling on it. Uh, that is just remarkable. And that helped me to establish myself in the Gulf Coast later on once I go down there and take southeastern to Pensacola to sell continental across the country. It helps me in a lot of different ways, that 80 share I just kept going back to it. So his TV, let's just take another look at a different way of looking at it. His TV was also not carrying a VHF signal, but a weaker UHF channel. So it did not have very much strength at all. That basically meant that it did not reach many people outside the 40-mile radius of Knoxville. WBIR reached areas that were 125 miles outside of Knoxville. All of that had to be considered. Kazana's TV show in 1974 at 6 p.m. reached a total, the figure showed, of 25,000 homes. And you usually multiplied that 25,000 homes by three people per household, which would equal 75,000 total people watching John Kazana's show in 74. July of 74 at 6 o'clock. Uh, he had been on that station for many years. And WBIR 
uh, our numbers at 2 o'clock in that July book of 1975 reached 60,000 homes, which amounted to times three, 180,000 viewers. We were more than 100,000 viewers larger than his 64, 74 figure. Uh, and we had, he had had several years to, as operating a business. Uh, we had been in business six weeks when this book came out. We had only been there for six weeks. And we had already accumulated more than 100,000 viewers more than what he, he had had. The shows you were competing with and your time slot on the other four stations in the market had to be considered. Kazana was on the fringe of primetime. He was competing with local news and other very popular programs. We were at 2 o'clock on Saturday and competing with mostly sports programs. Uh, it was very difficult to digest all the information disclosed by the Arbitron and Nielsen books. It was also pretty obvious that we were not in bad shape compared to his audience, with over 100,000 more viewers watching than was watching him in 1974. What I took from this was that within the city limits of the largest city in the market, Knoxville, we probably had a very similar audience. The major difference in the two books was in the huge outlying areas beyond 40 miles outside Knoxville that we had picked up by changing television stations. Instantly, it struck me. I needed to be running those smaller cities in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia right now. Having a weekly television show on TV would draw interest in the sport, but having live matches in those cities would really drive the interest everywhere we went. It was this meeting with Lynn Lepper and my discovery of how to analyze my business that ended my archaeological career instantly. <laughs> well, hold on. What, what do you mean it ended your archaeological career? You I mean, when to... I... I mean, when I sat there in that office and it struck me as to where my viewers were and uh, how I was ignoring them and not taking advantage of, of the fact that they were out there and wanted to buy my product. Uh, and, and I'm digging and scraping ground in Manchester, Tennessee, and wasting my days doing that rather than getting out there and getting these towns running, I said, man, I, Lynn, I'm through. I won't ever go back and touch a trowel again. I will never do any archaeological work anymore. But Ron, that's fine. That's what you said to Lynn. What did you say to your wife? That's more what I'm thinking about. Yeah, well, you know, I, it, 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 it made such a point to me when I saw the numbers and then it struck me like it did that I had no problem telling her. I went straight home and I said, you know, uh, we drew 4,000 people last night or, you know, a couple nights ago. And uh, we should be drawing uh, the 20,000 a week people. In, in, in this territory. And I started talking to her about what I had learned and what it what was obvious to me was pretty quickly obvious to her. Uh, we're just about at the end of the dig anyway. Uh, University of Tennessee classes are going to start back. They're about to shut down the dig at this point. But uh, for me, the dig was over right there that afternoon with Lynn Lepper. I was the, I said, that's it for me, Lynn. There'll be no more of that. And, uh, and I never went back to Manchester, Tennessee after that trip, after the last trip there. So, <laughs> oh, you know, I mean. Sweetheart, I wish I could help you, but you see, I'm very popular. I'm well, very, very popular. <laughs> well, well, you know, uh, I had helped her. That, I guess that was the That's point. True. At this point. I had, I had spent, I had spent almost eight straight weeks uh, every week, all week being gone, doing nothing to help my company and to promote my company and to, to make my company more successful in order to, to dig up, uh, Indian artifacts, uh, that I, I don't even know where those, all those bones and, 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 and pottery and, and all the things that were found. I have no idea where they ended up anyway. And it just seemed like to me that, man, you've got to get off your ass, Ron, and uh, you've got to start making this happen. Uh, also, too, Brian, this is at the end of the summer. 
and we're just about to get into September. School has started back, and we're about to reach the worst four months of of the racing uh, around the country. Uh, always from September uh, into January is really, really difficult to draw money. So if I don't do something here quickly, I'm I'm just really, really, um, I'm putting myself in a big hole here. Uh, I have not worked for Jarrett. I have not had that extra income. Uh, my, I've not taken taken payoffs. Uh, I, you know, I'm lucky to have drawn that four thousand people, uh, but uh, I wanted I wanted to get up to the six thousand. I want to draw that. I wanted to fill that coliseum. So my plans are to get big, and I figure I've I've, I've spent enough time. I've given you what I should and what I could, and now it's time for you to to give me time to spend for my company. So I was in the car the next morning and on my way to high schools in the southeastern part of Kentucky to find partners that needed money for all types of things with their schools and no way to make that money. We're back in a time frame in the 70s in which it was the economy was not good in America and uh, schools were struggling, especially they had all these things that they wanted to buy, but they didn't have any money. And I had a idea and a program that I wanted to present to them that they would become partners with me in Southeastern Wrestling. And I would give them 20% of the houses and they in return would give me their big gymnasiums to run my events in and support those events. And I wanted to get to work on that as it was. So I'd spent hours pouring over the maps of the state of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia because this television went into all of those states. I'd laid out a plan and, and created a list of cities in these states that were within the range of my WBIR's TV giant signal, man. That signal was pumped out there, and I needed to get to those places that it was being seen in Tennessee. I started looking at small towns, La Follette, Maryville, Oneida, Rockwood, Harriman, Sneedville, Greenville, Newport, Gatlinburg, Oliver Springs. I mean, the list just went on and on and on. In Kentucky, it was Corbin and Barberville and Harlan, Hazard and Somerset, Pikeville, Middlesbrough, on and on. Virginia, Big Stone Gap, Bristol. I mean, it was just... It, I was creating a list that, that, I, that I got to looking at and said, this is going to take me forever to get to all these places and to get all these places on board and set up. And, uh, you know, but once I was able to do it, and it did take me a couple of years before it all settled out and it was all set up and operating like a fine-tuned machine, and we were cranking out the big dollars. So by the time I finished making my list, I had well over a hundred cities with high schools and every one of them that needed me and my wrestling as much as I needed them. And, you know, I think, Brian, that day in the early August of 1975 was really the day that Southeastern wrestling became a territory. Wow. Because up until that point, it's just been really a town with a few other small towns run every now and then, maybe a three-day weekend. This is kind of the beginning of the actual territory. This is kind of the beginning of trying to run that six nights a week. And uh, and we are going to get it kicked off. I'm determined as I can be. Uh, I pulled myself out of being an archaeologist. And, uh, and I've decided that I'm a wrestler. And I am going to make my business successful. Well, Ron, as we wrap up this week's episode of the Studcast, we want to remind the listeners, if you're on Facebook, the page... Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Just like that page, and automatically you are friends with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud's on Twitter, too, at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last, and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network is on Twitter at Super Podcasts. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. And we mentioned it earlier. Super Studcast number 21 is now available. Part two with Roy Lee Welch is now up. And don't forget about part one with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. All in all, it is well over three hours, probably closer to three and a half hours of content. Check it out today. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Only $2.99 gets you in the door. Ron. Where are we going next week right here on the Studcast? 
Well, we're going to be searching in three states for opportunities to work with cities and their high schools to make things better for all concerned, not just for Southeastern, but for all these schools that need that money too. We're going to talk about the last two weeks in August for Southeastern Wrestling, the closing of Chilhowee Park for almost a month in September to make room for the annual fair that came to Knoxville. And we're going to talk about where I'm, I will be moving my matches during that time frame. I'm going to make a couple of shows in Florida for my, my good old friend, Bill Watts, uh, down there in late August. And I'm going to finally meet with the man that sued me for the $100,000. Sounds like a big episode next week. Make sure you check it out. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.